Welcome to the Performance Rising Podcast. This is episode four, and in this episode, I speak with Jason Seward, Assistant Vice President for Student Affairs at Virginia Wesleyan University. Jason and I cover a lot of ground in this episode, and he provides a really rich description of the culture he grew up in on the eastern shore of Maryland, so really dives into what that was like, what that felt like, the people, the places, And he then goes on to describe his role in shaping culture at Virginia Wesleyan. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. Hello, Jason Seward. Nice to see you. So nice to see you. Thanks for having me here. It's uh, really been looking forward to this conversation with you. Yeah, I am really looking forward to this because I think you can speak to this idea of culture on so many levels. So we, before we get to that, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. My name is Jason Seward. Uh, I am here in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where I work at a small private liberal arts uh, university called Virginia Wesleyan University. We're about 1,600 students, and I have the pleasure of being an alum of Virginia Wesleyan and now serving as the assistant vice president for student affairs. So as I like to say it, we get to, uh, I get to be involved in all the stuff outside of the classroom that makes the college experience. And how long have you been there? Wow. So I first came here in 1999 as a freshman. And uh, after graduating, I left for six very short months and went into the field of hospitality, working for a high-end resort, which was miserable. And was fortunate enough to come back here in 06 as a professional and have kind of served in many different roles and kind of found my calling for helping students, which led me to uh, earning my master's in higher education administration. uh, And then now into my current role. You said you have a passion. Where did you learn Mm -hmm. that passion? Um, I think it stemmed from my own experiences as an undergrad here. I was one of those students that didn't transition very well. And when I say I didn't transition very well, I just really liked college, but I hated the whole academic side of things. Um, And I had a I had a rough first semester and it was interaction with faculty and staff here, both uh, as professional staff, but also peer staff through my resident assistant and other folks who kind of helped me turn things around. And then I started back here working in campus recreation and and I was doing programming, which was in the field in which I earned my degree, which was which was recreational leisure services. And then through time and uh, experiences allowed to me through uh, my boss at the time, I kind of got involved in student discipline and housing and facilities and this and that. And then I was working with first year students when they were transitioning from high school. Uh, And it really just struck a chord that the higher education field, not so much the programming, but that's a large part of it, but helping students, especially freshman, sophomore year, that really struck a chord with me and that I I could be a resource to them, not, you know, not traveling down the same path that I did and, and saying, hey, someone has been where you are right now. I know you, you don't think so, and you think you're the only person that feels this way, 
but I have been there. Trust me. Um, and it, it, it comes in handy in helping them work through things, but it also comes in handy when you run into a student that thinks you were just born yesterday and you can say, look, man, <laughs> Hey, I, I know every trick in the book because I used it when I was here. Um, so it, it's kind of all those experiences that, that really said, this is where I want to be. And this is what I see. I could see doing as a career. Okay. Mm-hmm. So your passion is obvious and there is a lot obvious. in there that we're going to get obvious. Yeah. But before we get to that, mm-hmm. I want you to walk me through childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'm interested in human systems, the family is usually the first human system we're exposed to. Mm-hmm. So let's start there. Tell me about uh, your childhood, uh, parents, mm-hmm. what, that was, what that experience was like. Absolutely. So where I grew up, um, which is officially a small town called Cambridge, Maryland, that's where my zip code is. But uh, I grew up in an area about 25 minutes outside of Cambridge um, that pretty much the only thing they have in common is they share that zip code. Uh, It's a very blue collar area. Uh, It is uh, very hands-on, very family, deep-rooted history, longevity in in, in that area. So growing up, uh, your parents were either farmers, uh, tradespeople, commercial watermen, or they had a job in town. Uh, my mother worked for uh, the school board system for the majority of what I can remember. She worked with the city for a while, but for the most part, she worked for the Department of, uh, of Education for Dorchester County. And then my father uh, was a commercial waterman, so crab for blue crabs in the summer, oysters in the winter. And then my grandparents owned a farm. So he helped out on the farm. I always called him one of those jacks of all trades, masters of all of them, because he just was so versed in things. And uh, he was a uh, sun up to sundown work was the thing that paid the bills that grew the family. Uh, my mother was more of a free spirit, so I get a lot. I got a lot of my childhood experiences through her, you know, taking me to Beach Boy concerts when I was four, every festival under the sun, uh, because she was all about the experience. And um, it was a it was a fun balance between you know my father's you know work ethic and this is I'm working so they can not have to work as hard as I do, but that also they can have these types of experiences. You have siblings? I do have an older sister who's 13 years older than I am. So a lot of my childhood, uh, especially later, was she was kind of out on her own doing her own thing. So it was almost like I was an only child, I guess. But there was such a gap between us um, that I can remember some stuff early on when I was younger and then she was kind of out the door and then we could re- we really reconnected, uh, I'd say post high school graduation. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, what did it mean to be a member of your family? Um, for us, family was everything. So you, it was top priority. You know, if, if someone was in need of something, you stopped what you were doing and you helped family. That 
that was most important. Um, we there was an expectation that you know if you weren't doing if you if I wasn't traveling with my mother then you were working especially being um, I'd say we were lower middle class so you know my father saw it especially when I was old enough that this was another free uh, somewhat free labor until I started saying hey you owe me money for these things but you know we would work I can remember Saturday mornings wanting to watch cartoons because that's what my friends did. But, and then cartoons were, you could watch cartoons if you got everything done that you needed to. And, you know, chopping wood because we had a wood burning fireplace. We didn't have central air. So that was things that kept the family going. So you were expected to, to be uh, part, part, once you were old enough, of course, you were expected to be providing and participating in the operations of the family. Nothing was a free ride. You know, dinner was, you earned your dinner. And that was the same thing. You know, my grandmother's on the farm. I can remember getting off the school bus with friends and we'd go hang out at the farm. And, you know, a kid growing up on a 300 acre farm, we could go wherever we wanted. We had one rule, which was you had to hear her calling and she called you. But um, you, if your friends were there and there was like summertime when the vegetables were in the garden, you had to put in time in the garden before you earned your meal. Like it was you, everything was working for the family or advancing the family. Um, so I, I guess to nutshell it is you protect the family at all costs. You do what you have to for the family and you actively participate. And if you had to break that down into maybe three values that you felt or learned or experienced that really mm -hmm. under undergirded your family structure, what would those mm -hmm. values be? Wow. I think one of the strongest ones that I've always tried to live by is your name is everything. So when you tell someone you're going to do something or you make a deal with someone, you're selling them something, you shake hands, like your name is then attached to it. Uh, when I was growing up, you know, if you got into mischief like us kids did living down there and it came to the attention of people, it was our name attached to it. So you know, the, everything was, you're a person, you're, you're a, a, a man of your word. Like if you say you're going to do it, you're going to do it because your name's attached to it. Um, another value was growing up where we grew up, where I grew up, it was very rural. So everyone looked like me, meaning most people were Caucasian, white. And there are a lot of people that live down there still. Some of them have passed away from age where you know, they, they're still rooted in the way the South used to be for whatever reason. Um, but my parents were very big on you treat everyone as a person. You don't see color. You don't see religion. You don't see gender like you golden rule. You treat people the way that you want to be treated. You treat them fair. You treat them right. You treat them respectable. And in some cases, when you don't get that back or you learn the true person, you kind of cut those people out. So that would be number two. And then I would say number three was, um, man, family is everything. Like that's everything. At the end of the day, you, your family is what's most important, regardless of their viewpoints, how far apart they live, how the last time you talked to one of them, they're everything and, and they should be respected and loved and cherished. 
That's fantastic. And thank you for that. So with those values in mind, what would you say is the, was the mission statement of your family? So as a member Ooh. of your family, what was your mission statement? Mm. I, that's a great question. I've never been asked that. Um, I would say it would go something like give it everything you have and never leave someone wondering how you feel about them. And what were the behaviors that were praised and what were the behaviors that were criticized in support of that mission? Uh, behaviors that were pra behaviors that were praised were, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Behaviors that were prayed, I guess, with loyalty, for lack of a better word, I'm, I'm, I'm searching right now, but loyalty meaning um, you were obedient, you did what you were asked to do, um, you, uh, you never gave pause for uh, the persona of what you were giving with the last name, so, so you were loyal and obedient. That was praised. Hard work was praised. Um, being able to problem solve on your own was praised. Um, I can remember my father would just give you situations where he would be very vague in the descriptions um, because he wanted you to figure things out. He wanted you to ask questions when necessary, but he didn't want you to waste time with dumb questions because there is such thing as a dumb question. Um, I learned that early on too. What's a dumb um, question? Uh, that was a dumb question. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's good. <laughs> uh, so hard work was praised. Uh, things that were criticized were dumb questions, st simple mistakes, you know, not being thorough, taking shortcuts, um, just not, not being mature. Those were, that was the biggest thing. Like we never got spanked or, or anything like that when I was growing up. I might catch an occasional pluck to the back of the head. And my father had these big calloused hands and they just pow, thump you. But you just didn't mess up for fear of letting your parents down, for fear of letting your, my grandparents down. Um, because you didn't want, you didn't want to feel that feeling like they were ashamed of you. And they never, they never said we're ashamed of you, but you just didn't want to let them down. Um, so uh, th I think that would be one of the biggest things you got criticized for was just not being mature enough. And that was tough sometimes for a 10, 11, 12 year old to understand. But then I think of it from my parents' perspectives, like where my mother grew up was my mother grew up farther out in the country than where I grew up. She grew up in an area called Hooper's Island where my grandmother was working in the picking house, picking crabs for, to make money. And they were sneaking them in at six, seven years old. And they were picking crabs because the more money that the more crabs that my grandmother picked meant more money for the family. So at six, seven, eight years old, they were working the farm or they were working in the picking house. My mother remembers riding with my grandfather from Hooper's Island all the way to an area just at the Virginia line to deliver seafood like you were contributing very early on and that was expected of us. And that was tough for me growing up in the late eighties, early nineties, because all my friends that lived in town were taking the weekend and playing in soccer leagues and building tree forts in the back and all that kind of stuff. And, 
and we were learning those values very early on and sure you know we wanted to goof off every now and then but it, it was a fun childhood because looking back I know I knew I was finding those values that now I'm putting in place with the students I'm working with and then I'm teaching our son as he's growing up and he's only not even two yet but it starts very early yeah mm-hmm. okay so we're gonna move so we I feel like I understood what it was like to be in your family mm-hmm. and I now want to go one system bigger and talk about okay. the community okay and I think now we have to pose the million dollar question which is how do you define mm-hmm. culture you know I was thinking about this when it came up, culture is one of those words that it's kind of cool because it can mean so many different things depending on how you look at it and what angle you look at it and how you unpack it. Um, I think when I define culture, um, the, my, the first thing that jumps out to me, it's not some picture hanging on the wall. It's the culture is kind of whatever environment you're in or whatever team you're working with, the culture is kind of like that family feel. So just like you asked me, what was it like to grow up in my family? I think of the culture as being just that. So I think of like being an employee here at our university, we have a specific culture and that culture changes, of course, of course, with leadership, depending on who the monarch of the family is at the point. But it's, it's what are you expecting of the people who you are living with, working with, learning with on a daily basis? So what are, you, what are you expecting from them? What are your expectations? And can they live up to those expectations? And working in this field, sometimes people can't live up to those expectations or those culture, that culture that's established here. Um, and they unfortunately move on or, or move elsewhere. Um, but ultimately you're developing a community that all the people share in that same vision, those same values, those same expectations that everyone has here. That's what I would, that's what I would say. That, that's, that's what jumps out to me when I hear the word, you know, know, what is culture? Are expectations told or co-created? I think both. I think they're like, for instance, on the student discipline side, you know, and I keep referring to my environment here for work, you know, we expect our students to behave a a certain way. We have student standards that they abide by, that they sign off to, that these are the expectations. And then some of them, especially in today's um, society, are are co-learned because so much is changing. Things are, are constantly changing, I think now more than ever so before. And there are growing pains with that. So, so some of them are established in working with our, our, we're working with our students, so they know what our expectations are for us as professionals. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Going back to your community, so mm-hmm. family now community. Mm-hmm. What was the culture, or is the culture of the Neck District? The culture of the Neck District. The culture of the Neck District was, because it's changed, um, it's very much like our family was. Everyone had their own clans. I mean, the, the last names down there were so far back and rooted that everybody was much like we were. Everybody had, you know, similar jobs. Uh, everyone helped each other out. You know, hard work was valued. It was an expectation. The culture was that... Um, 
the the culture was you take care of your own first and but you also never turn your back on a neighbor that's in need um and there were some people who you know had deep um uh not hatred hatred such a long word but there were there were people down there that had histories that really sometimes didn't see eye to eye but at the end of the day when somebody was in need they helped out a neighbor because that was the community um you know anybody passed john lewis's store for the most part or let's say every anybody passed lloyd's firehouse and people who are listening to this podcast have no clue but you've been there you know but that was like where we drew the line so anybody passed there you were our neighbor and if you needed something if you were in need if you needed help you took care of it um you know i, I think of a story i just recently learned my aunt passed away last month and we were down and our family farm also houses like the community cemetery. Everybody's buried there, most everybody. And there was a grave marker that I never noticed. And and I I said something to uh, I said something to one of the, the older people there that's been around for a long time, a friend of my dad's. And I said, Do you know who this is? And he said, Yeah, it was the such and such infant. It was the infant child of a family that lived across the creek that had passed away and the family had separated. They didn't have a lot of money. And my grandfather said, you just bring me the bill and I'll take care of what happens to the child. So we have this young infant child that passed away at some point in the late sixties that is buried in our family plot because you took care of a neighbor. This was a woman in need. Her family was in need and the child needed to be honored and you just, you take care of it. If that culture was a symbol, mm -hmm. what symbol would it be? Woo. Um, now, when you say symbol, are we talking like just one object? Are we talking about like a scene of objects? Are we talking about if I was creating a flag? I mean, yes. What? Okay. I like that. Uh, the best way that I could put it would probably be a chain that each link is an ind each ind each link is an individual that by itself is very strong, but then as you link them together, they serve a much greater purpose uh, and uh, a really really unbreak strong unbreakable chain. Where did power come from? Where did power come from in our community? <laughs> um, from the elders, from the from the older. It, it kind of got passed down. I mean. It, it was, you saw like, a, you really saw a torch being passed. Like when someone would die off, it was a big deal because someone had to step up and fill a void. And it was typically the next oldest in line that would, that would make that move into that role. And not everybody was up for that role. I mean, there were people who, there were people who couldn't wait to get away from where we grew up because they understood what was the expectation there. And especially if you held a, a senior role, because those guys were, you know, you were working all day long, but then it was a volunteer fire company. So if someone's house caught fire, you know, you were expected to pitch in and help out and, and it wasn't for everybody. So I'd say the power came from the elders. What role did storytelling play? Oh, huge, huge. I mean, just, from an oral history, but you know, there's a, you heard me say it earlier, Lewis's store, that was our little community general store. And in the back corner, there was an area called the liar's bench. 
because everyone had a story about the fish that got away and how big it was. But And this was before camera phones, so you were just kind of going off people's words. So there were oral histories passed down and legends passed down, and it was all through storytelling. And I consider some of those guys to be some of the best storytellers. They should have had their own podcast because they could have just – people would have hung on to every word. I mean, that's what my wife and I were talking the other night. When, when someone from my childhood passes away now, it's really like you're losing a television character. Like I can remember looking up to these kids, because uh, these guys, because when I was young, because they were so exciting and they had these awesome stories about fights when they were younger and finding this out in the field and the creek and this, and, and you were kind of like, oh my, I, that could happen to me. I can't wait to get to that point. So now when I, and they're almost like invincible. And now when I hear about one of them passing away, it's like, you know, it's like Superman died. Like, wait, what? That doesn't happen. But it inevitably does. What about any rituals or routines that support that culture? Ooh, rituals or routines? Um, Well, I always used to get joked on because when I was young, I'd go up to the store and all the older guys would say, hey, have you tried your father yet? Because that meant trying your father meant try to fight him. Uh Because that, that proved you were a man. Like, if you try, if you were big enough to try him. So I'll never forget when I was about 13, I was at the store and we were up there for lunch and they were in my ear about, have you tried him? And I was thinking to myself, you know what? I could hand, I could handle him. <laughs> and uh, that afternoon we went, we were at home and he had this uh, pickup truck and he was up on a stool and he was inside the, like working on something in the motor. And I, uh, I came out the side door and I was like, perfect. You know, there he is. I'm going to try him. So I walked up and, and I punched him in the back of the leg as hard as I could. And uh, he had a real bad left leg from when he was slaughtering a steer on the farm. When he went to cut the steer's throat, it reared its head back and hit his knee and shattered it. So he had pins and all kinds of stuff in his knee. And uh, I hit him just perfect. And that knee buckled. And when it buckled, I heard, I heard the wrench hit every bolt on the way through that engine compartment and i just the only thing i knew to do was take off running I knew I, I knew I had messed up and i can just remember getting a distance away and just feeling what felt like uh, a mac truck hitting me square on the ass uh and flying through the air and then he came over top of me and he grabbed me by the shirt and my father was one of the strongest people I ever knew and I and in, in my life today I'm, I'm I'm taller I'm bigger I'm than he was but but he was just a bull and that was his nickname and he picked me up off the ground from laying I was laying on the ground and he grabbed me by the shirt he picked me up off the ground and held me above his head with one arm and I just remember being incomplete like I just knew I'd messed up and I never tried him again. So that, that was one of those rituals where it's like you, especially if you're a boy, you know, you always tried your old man. Like at some point I'm going to become stronger and bigger than he is, but I never reached that point. What was control and how was it exercised? Um, control was, control was trust. So if they told you not to do something, if they asked you to do something, if they said, you know, hey, I, you, I want you to do this, then 
the expectation was that they trusted you to do it, to do it, do what they asked or what they didn't ask you to do. And if you, if you, if you couldn't be controlled or you didn't live up to that expectation, then there was a lesson. And that lesson may be, uh, you get your vehicle taken away for, you know, a period of time, or you're not allowed to go fishing or, uh, you know, you have to work X amount of times without getting paid. I mean, that, that's how it, there was, there was a consequence for every action that you had, but they gave you a lot of free range. Like I said, the only rule on the farm, or there was two rules. You had to, you had to be able to, to hear my grandmother when she called you and respond. So either yell cling pots together whatever you had to do to get her attention she had to, you had to be moving in her direction and then don't stand on the well because the well was 100 feet deep and it was covered by an old ratty piece of wood so so that was but that was it they trusted you to do what they said and what they expected and the control really was if you violated that there was a big letdown and and there was a consequence for your action thank you that is a yeah. fascinating study of Eastern Shore of Maryland. Oh man, that's yeah. It's at, I mean, at its core, it, it's really like it really was like a, an area that time had kind of forgotten, and it was like those movies. What you see when someone what was it Field of Dreams? Was it Field of Dreams when the old man was a doctor? Yep. And then he crossed the line and he turned into young whatever, but there was an understanding that he could never go back. I mean, it was like as soon as you got past Lloyd's Firehouse, you were then in city limits, and it was a different world. But when you got past there, there was there was a way of doing things. And that's exactly where I want to go. So what was school to you? Um, school for us was a means to an end. It was, uh, quite frankly, it was important. But growing up where we grew up, it was kind of a check of the box, if that makes sense. You know, college was never really expected. Um. A lot of people saw college, especially my parents, as kind of a way out of this lifestyle. Um, nothing that, not that there was anything wrong with the lifestyle, but it was, they killed themselves working. They just, it was, you had to, you had to work, work, work nonstop, especially if you were self-employed. I mean, it was a never ending rat race. Now it came with some freedoms, you know, you didn't, you could take off when the hunting was good or the fishing was good. You could, you had that flexibility. So it was a simple way of life, but I think they were very foreshadowing and knowing, I think they knew what was coming as far as society. And, and they knew that it was a way out. Um, that, that didn't translate to me real well. It was never really exciting for me. I kind of, like I said, I, my vision was I wanted to work on the water and my senior year of high school, I'll, I'll never forget my father had done some work for someone. And in return of, in lieu of pay, he got a work boat that gave him a boat and it didn't run. It needed some work. So we took his boat, we towed it, we put it in the slip. It's going to be working on it. It was going to be my boat. And like that was the next chapter for me. And I came home one day and he said, Hey, I, I got to tell you something. I sold the boat. I'm like, what? what are you talking about? He's like, I sold the boat, la la la. And I was pissed. I mean, it was like, what? You know, I, 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 at the time I didn't see it. And he said, I, I, I couldn't, I don't want to see you. I don't want to see you go this route because it's a dying industry. 
Um, and, and you need more opportunity and, and this isn't it. And it sucked. I mean, I, I was hurt and I, I was like, you know, what the hell just, you know, 17 years old and thought I knew everything. And, and he just, they wanted more from me and, and I just couldn't see it at the time. So how do you go from being the uh, scion of the neck district? to college <laughs> when it wasn't expected um again because it was relayed to me as an expectation so they were you're going to go take the sats you know you're going to get into school and, and you're going to do it um there and that was tough for me when i had that when i like i back to where i started when i didn't transition well and i had that really really bad first semester that was a very tough conversation for me to have around the dinner table because I the amount of money that was wasted that first semester I know how hard they had to work for it I know what they had to sacrifice to get it and I just completely opened the window and threw it out and I, it was a very tough conversation for me to have um, because I was I was not mature I was not ready enough I probably should have had a conversation with them about my readiness um, but they probably would have known that I would have just kept putting it off and putting it off and may have never gone. Um, so they really pushed me and, and it, that was a tough, that was a tough six month period. So why Virginia Wesleyan? Financial aid package. No lie. I, I applied and they was the best on paper knowing from a cost perspective. Um, I didn't try hard enough in high school either. I was a, I was an okay student. My SAT grades were okay. Um, I didn't apply to too many schools. I, I knew that I wanted small. I knew that I didn't want big. Um, and uh, they had the best financial aid package. So stepping on campus for the first time, mm -hmm. boy from the neck district, mm -hmm. what did you feel? Uh, I kind of felt community. I'll never forget it. it was like it's real small. Like, you know, I met the president of the college at the time on a, on a visit here. And then ran into him again during orientation, and he remembered my name because we'd struck up a conversation about our hometown because he was from a place in Georgia, and, and they were very similar. So he knew my name. So I, I kind of got that that real close family atmosphere atmosphere when I said, "Okay, yeah, this 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 reminds me of home, although it's in a very very the, the, one of the heaviest populated areas in the state of Virginia." Um, it just kind of felt like it's because it's so small. We're only about 300 acres, the same size as my grandparents' farm. It felt like this small neck district area in this much larger, vast metropolitan space. Did you have any interaction with the greater Virginia Beach or were you pretty much isolated on the campus? No, you did. I mean, that's where you went for free time to have fun. You went to the beach. You went to several local establishments um, to try to get into with a fake ID or um live the college life but you also had like old dominion university which is a major university right down the road which we interacted with folks you had the you know the mid-atlantic fleets here it's such a military town it's just a melting pot of people so it was an exciting place to go to get outside it was like crossing lloyd's all over again it was like okay this is where you go out to get into the big city and uh, there's still people that refer to me by as big city as a nickname from that live back home like this is nowhere near big city, but for everybody that grew up in Hudson, it is. Did you make friends easy? 
Yeah, I made friends real easy um, because that same thing that was instilled to me by my parents is you never made a stranger and you kind of very welcoming to everyone. Um, so, so friends were an easy thing to make. Yeah. And how would your friends describe you as a college student? Or I'm sorry, in college, how would they describe you? Oh, um, loyal, uh, sense of humor, just lighthearted, taking everything with a grain of salt. Um, good listener. You know, I, I, I tend to let people unpack and I carry it around for them and help them uh, analyze what's going on. I'm a, I'm a self-proclaimed expert at everything, even though I'm not. Um, but uh, yeah, loyalty is big for me. Um, guarded, I would say. Um, uh, I, I use the term, I have a lot of acquaintances, but I have a small number of friends those are people that I let really, really in close. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a chameleon. I, I, I love everyone. I love people. I've never met a stranger. Um, I can say there's a handful of people I've come in contact with life that I'm not much on and I just avoid them at all costs. Okay. So I want to explore this paradox that you just okay. outlined. Okay. You said you spent a, a large portion talking about making friends easy, being outgoing, uh, being a great listener. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet you said, I'm very guarded. Mm -hmm. So help me unpack that paradox. How do those two things exist in you? Because I think everyone has, there's a self and then there's a true self and it's, and the self isn't different from the, from the true self, but the true self is at its core, the people that you wouldn't mind breaking down with and, and shedding tears with and letting, you know, letting them know your most deep emotions. You know, I see that as burdening others. And I guess that's another thing I got from growing up is a person's baggage is their baggage. And regardless, it's your baggage. Don't pass your baggage off to somebody else, which is weird for me also, because like I said, I also would let people unload and I'd carry it for them because I want to help people. But at the same time, I don't want to, I don't like burdening people with my things. And I don't let people in to see when I'm scared, when I'm upset, when I'm hurt. You know, just last night, there was something that happened and it, it kind of struck me wrong. It kind of struck me wrong. And, um, and I didn't, yeah, it, it just kind of stuck with me. And then finally, I didn't even want to tell my wife about it. Because I was like, ah, I don't want to bother her with this. But then she and I started to have a conversation because she's one. Of, she's my my person. She's my person, hundred percent. But she's one of the people that I I feel comfortable enough letting see that. So we're gonna take a, a detour here because what I'm hearing is a trope of masculinity. Mm -hmm. So the the archetypes that you describe your father and the elders of the community. Mm -hmm. What was their relationship to expressing emotion? Um, are we talking about like full emotion or any slight bit of bit of emotion? Uh, like, like, like saying, I love you. 
No, we're talking about, um, so did they express sadness? Did they express fear? Did they express anger? Did they express joy? Did they express shame? Kind of the four, um, the five core emotions. Joy, yes. Sadness, you never saw it. Like if you knew someone was having a hard time, you knew it, but they didn't openly show it. Like when they were out and about, you couldn't tell. You just knew they were going through some stuff and they were handling it. Um, like for instance, I saw my father cry three times. Three times in my life, I can remember him crying. Once when we had a yellow lab, they got run over and killed. Once when uh, my sister and I wrote him a note when he was diagnosed with cancer the first time. And then the second was the day that him and my mother were leaving me here on campus. That's the only three times I saw him cry. Um, fear, no. You know, you never saw fear. Even when my dad was sick, when he was at the end, his sickness, he never showed fear. Um, I think Bruce, Bruce probably saw the only glimpse of weakness that I've even heard about him ever having during that time, which was right at the very end. Um, you just fear and sadness weren't expressed much joy and happiness were. And who's Bruce? Bruce, uh, Bruce is your father-in-law, um, who is one of the kindest, most gentlest people I've ever met, most giving people I've ever met, um, who, uh, who moved to our area, uh, and struck up a friendship, uh, with my father. Um, that was a very strong bond. And it was interesting because Bruce being a very open and talking about feelings and emotional type person, it was, it challenged him. It challenged him to, to talk about those things. And Bruce would push, push, push to get him to say stuff <laughs> until he couldn't push anymore. So, uh, yeah. So happiness and joy. Yeah. That was expressed sadness and fear. You didn't let people know that. And how, what's your comfort level with those two sadness and fear? Uh, um, Sadness, I don't mind. Again, if you're, if I'm comfortable with you, um, fear, I don't like to show fear. Uh, it, I think, materializes itself in different ways. Um, but I, I, I don't let people know how I'm feeling about a situation if it, if it terrifies me. Um, sadness, I'll share with the right people. Uh, and, and look, I want to be fair, too. The, the women of the Neck District were the same way. Like my grandmother who lived by herself till she was 97 years old and she died in her afternoon nap. She was one of the most stone cold people I've ever met in my life. Like that, the, the women of the Neck District, they were the cornerstones of the family. And in a lot of cases, they were tougher than a lot of the men. Um, that that it, it was like the area. It wasn't. It wasn't a, it, it, everyone was the same. I mean, it's, it's just, it's the wildest thing to experience as a kid. Thank you for that. Thank you for your honesty. Mm -hmm. um, and thank you for that little detour. Mm -hmm. um, but, but back to this, this larger narrative, mm -hmm. you, you go to college, mm -hmm. graduate college, and then what? Um, so then... One of the things that I, I mean, the, right after college, I, I went home. I went home. Well, let me, let me back up. So 
in what was my first senior year, should have been my first senior year, had I not screwed off uh, the first year, um, that was when my father passed away. So knowing, knowing the role that he played in the family in making sure that things were taken care of and making sure that, you know, he was the, you worked. I mean, that's what supported the family. I took a year off because I, I needed to go back and I needed to kind of assess the situation. I needed to work and needed to contribute and I needed to, um, I needed to make sure that, uh, that it was provided for. And that kind of, that was a good idea and a bad idea. Um, it was a bad idea because, uh, just like you asked me about fear and sadness, I didn't process his loss very well. So there were some very damaging, uh, damaging lifestyle choices I was uh, partaking in because it was the only thing that masked those two uh, emotions from becoming <laughs> public uh, consumption. Um, so I, so I, I suppressed it with, uh, with other things. Um, and it was just a failed experiment. The best thing I could have done was just continue on the path I was on. I, I, I was in no way, like I said, I was in no way, shape or form ready to fill those shoes. I thought I was, um, but I wasn't. And, um, and ultimately I came back after that year and, uh, I, I was able to finish my degree. And then I went back home. Like I said, I, I, I went to work for Hyatt Regency hotels, which has a big resort up in Cambridge. I went to work in the field that I'd gotten my degree in, uh, but I really, I quickly realized that the culture that was in that environment wasn't for me. Um, I, it just, it, it, it was too fast paced. It was too big brother. You couldn't be the individual. Um, it just wasn't for me. So then fortunately, luckily enough, I came back here and, and got a job back at Virginia Wesleyan um, doing campus recreation. So, you know, reflecting on it now that I'm more mature, you know, I, I like the environment in which I grow up in. I like the environments in which I spend time in. That's where I'm most comfortable. That's one of the reasons that I went back home because I knew that environment. I didn't strike off to California or somewhere else because I, I like, I like my environments that I'm in. And then ultimately came back here because I knew this space. I knew the culture here. I liked the culture here and, and it was comfortable for me. Is it safety? Is it safety? I don't know if it's safety because I like, I'm a, I like to take chances, um, which is odd because again, it's, 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 it's contradictory. Like, Hey, I'm back here where I know and I'm comfortable, but I like to take chances. Um, I think ultimately it's just a feeling. I don't know if it's safety. Uh, it's, it's a feeling of complete calmness. Like I know it's, it's just comfort. I know these surroundings. Safety may be a part of that, sure, um, but it's it's that's not the the biggest factor for me. So there's a great theory called the basic need theory mm -hmm. to explore uh, motivations in, in psychology, mm -hmm. and uh, has four components. Mm -hmm. The first is a need for attachment. Mm -hmm. Second is a need for self-esteem and its protection. Mm -hmm. Third is a need for orientation and control. And a fourth is a need for pleasure maximization and pain avoidance. Mm -hmm. Is that what safety is? Kind of fitting into those 
Yeah, I mean, I'd say I'd say if you break it down, those those four pieces, absolutely, absolutely. People want to be in environments in which they have complete control over, and they don't like outside influence because some people handle that better than others. They want to uh, have control over the situation. They want to have be be comfortable in their surroundings. So breaking it down like that, I'd say yeah, that's what safety is. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Okay, we leave college. We go back. We realize, use the word culture, culture wasn't a great fit to Hyatt. And now you are back at uh, Virginia Wesleyan. Mm -hmm. What was it like walking on the campus as an employee? Um, it was an easy transition for me because in my later years here, I was holding student positions on campus, um, RA building facility manager. So, so I, I had already been working a lot um i was removed by about uh that year i took off when i moved home after my father passed away kind of made that separation between people that i was real close with here so they were kind of gone so a lot of people didn't they knew i'd gone here but they weren't very familiar with me so i thought it was a it was a pretty smooth transition and then it was a really cool experience to kind of see behind the scenes things like things you didn't realize that, that happened, you know, the way certain operations pieces were, budgets, you know, tuition driven, you know, to really learn the inner workings, that was exciting. So did you feel that the culture you experienced, here's the C word again, the culture you experienced mm -hmm. as a student was the same or different than when you started working as an employee? Uh, I felt it was the same because um, being so small of a community, so many of our faculty and staff members were interacting with us outside of regular office hours at school traditions and homecomings. And it, it was really a cool kind of environment to live and learn in because everyone was on the same page, you know, nine to five, Monday through Friday or Saturday at a soccer game. So let's go there. Tell me about mm -hmm. Virginia Wesleyan. What are the values that underpin Virginia Wesleyan's culture? Uh, hard work. Um, you know, we, we expect a lot of our students, we expect them to come in uh, and, uh, and over their time here become top candidates in their field to enter the workforce and be good representation of the university. Um, uh, we expect, see there's expecting again, we value the individual. Um, we don't really see sexual orientation, religion, you know, we're, we're affiliated with the Methodist institution. Um, but you know, we don't have mandatory service. We, we really value the individual. It's a, such a melting pot, like I said earlier, which was, a, which was a refreshing thing, big difference between Wesleyan and Hudson because everyone wasn't like me, you know, everyone didn't go to the same denomination church. Everyone wasn't the same color. Everyone didn't have the same political viewpoints. Uh, everyone didn't have the same, hair color and piercings it it was it was very unique and, and that's very much still the case here we value the individual um uh honesty is huge for us you know we we want people who are honest people say what they're going to do submit their own work um we expect people to to kind of have that neighbor type atmosphere as far as community goes in which you help somebody out when they need it. Um, we take care of one another. Um, it, it really is a pretty cool environment. So what, and I know that Virginia, like most colleges has, 
as a literal mission. Uh-huh. What would you, how would you paraphrase in your words, the mission of Virginia Wesleyan? The mission of Virginia Wesleyan, I would say is to prepare, um, to prepare, to be, to prepare our students, to be, pre- pre- to prepare our students um, for a, a fast paced changing uh, technology based world while also celebrating their individuality. And what are the behaviors that are rewarded in support of that mission? Um, and this is, this is by everyone, not yeah, just yeah, students. Yeah, yeah. Um, accepting of different viewpoints is, is, is praised. Um, this is an environment in which you are going to interact with people, like I said, of different whatever beliefs, faiths, values, you name it. But we're also an environment in which uh, we encourage that dialogue uh, among differing views. And but we also encourage uh, that if you're going to make a statement, you need to be prepared to discuss it fully. You just can't make a statement based off something you heard on MSNBC, Fox News, The Onion, uh, and every uh, periodical between there. Um, that if you make statements. You need to be prepared that someone's going to have a different viewpoint of you than you. And you need to be able to talk through those things and see that other side of it while also articulating your, your own values and beliefs. Um, that's rewarded. Um, taking shortcuts isn't rewarded. Uh, it's, it's, you know, the easy way out, mediocre performances, you know, just doing the bare minimum. Um, those aren't things that we want from our, our students or our faculty and staff. Um, if we're expecting our students to be giving us this, we need to be giving them that in return. Um, uh, what else is rewarded? Um, kindness is rewarded big time. Um, those are some that stick out to me right off the top of my head. Okay. So if Virginia Wesleyan was a symbol, what symbol would it be? Hmm. Um, well, I'll go to what our, our current, the centerpiece of our campus is, and that's our beacon. Um, our beacon is a large brick structure that resembles a lighthouse that has a light at the top. Um, and, and it's the, the highest point on campus. You can see it shining. You can hear the chimes. Uh, it'd be that beacon. What is power and where does it come from? Um, Power is um, power is our students. Power is the different clubs and organizations, Greek organizations, majors, um, uh, special interest clubs, uh, internships, honor societies. That's that's what the power is. Uh, and sometimes it's, it's hard for our students to realize that. Um, and I don't know if that's just a, a uh, well, I do. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thing of the generation. They know how much they have, they know how much power they have as a, a collective group, but it's getting them to start the engine at the individual. Um, I always tell them, I'm like, I wish I would come to campus every day and you guys were peacefully protesting something you believe so strongly in. 
But I, more importantly, I wish you could articulate why you believe so strongly in that and why, how and why it impacts you. Um, hide behind keyboards and social media um, and, and we don't talk through things. And that's what we encourage here in our environment. So that's where the power from it is our students and it comes from our students. And we're going to get to students here in a minute. Yeah. We're going to do okay. a deep dive. Um, okay. What is the story or stories that Virginia Westland tells itself about itself? Mm. Uh, I think that it tells itself a story of it was a small liberal arts college at the time that was kind of uh, doing things the way they had always been done. And then here in recent years, uh, when there was a, a, a leadership change at the president level, um, we saw a need to do things much differently. Like I said, we were that kind of guarded community that was here in this metropolitan area. And we saw a need to do things differently, be it uh, community partnerships, be it online classes and master's degrees. So we saw, uh, I think the, the old, the new, the old Virginia Wesleyan would tell itself now uh, the story of how it didn't think it, what it didn't think it could be what it is today. Um, that it was it was mired in this history, even though it was only founded in 1961. It's one of the youngest institutions in the state. It was just a lot of our operations and the way we did things were stuck in 1961. And we've had to embrace technology. We've had to embrace a changing demographic of student body, a changing society in which our, our young professionals were going out working in. Um, so it was kind of a hold on to your hat situation. And in five years, it's really, it really went from like uh, your grandmother's Buick Century to your cool uncle's Ford Mustang. Well said. So what did, what are the rituals? So in light of that change, mm -hmm. I want to ask about rituals and I'm wondering mm -hmm. maybe what were the rituals and what are the rituals and are they different to support the Mustang? Uh-huh. Um, again, the rituals revolved around students. And while they're very much the same, that portion of it has been enhanced. That we really, really, really focus on the student and the student experience and what they get out of things. You know, we had to go back and take a look and some of the traditions and things we used to do, we cut because they no longer fit in what the new landscape looked like. Um, Can you give me an example of that? Um, but, 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 yes, like our commencement ceremony. So our commencement ceremony used to be outside on the lawn and it was this gorgeous, you know, and centered around the campus and the beauty of campus. And then we built the facility in which I'm sitting in right now talking to you in 2002. And we said, all right, we're going to move inside because it's air conditioning. We never have to worry about weather. And to me, it really kind of lost that, that chutzpah, you know, um, of, of what commencement is. And then this past year, we moved it back outside to the university commons. And I thought it was uh, just a grander set student centered ceremony. It used to be, you can, you had to wear certain color shoes 
and your hair couldn't be a certain color and you had to wear dark slacks and you couldn't wear decorate your cap and you couldn't wear pins and you couldn't wear stoles. Well, that's for the institution. That's not the student. And at the end of the day, we're celebrating our students. Um, so, so that that's really been a big change, a major, major ritual and commencement that that's changed in the last five years. And lastly, what is control and where does it come from? Um, what is control and where does it come from? For our institution, again, it's the students. The students have a lot of power and control. And the things that they participate in that make our campus great, um, the policies in which they help write and shape and and operations that they help and are involved with. Um, it, it, it's really our students, again. Now I wanna get to, go ahead. Which is weird because, you know, when you think of businesses and corporations, you know, and like I talked about Hudson, it was the elders. It was the older people, it was the, it's, it's the upper administrations, it's the managers. And while they control the direction and the vision of the institution with the board of trustees, at the end of the day, in a setting like I work in, it's the students. If the students want something bad enough and they go through the right avenues and the channels and they have the conversations, then it happens. So at the end of the day, that's who we're here to serve. So let's talk about serving the students. Mm -hmm. What, how do you define your role? Huh. Um, big brother, meaning, you know, big brother, uh, when, you, when you need to head coach, when you need to get grabbed by the face mask because you're not doing it right or you're being too pompous about it or you just need to come back to center, that's what I do. Um, when you need somebody to have a conversation with because things just are, are troubling you, they're not going right, then, hey, let's have a conversation. I'm going to let you vent, but then let's, let's talk about how we can change things and, and be a change and not talk about all the things that are making us feel this way. So that, that's, that's what I'd categorize my job in. So are you a teacher? Are you a psychologist? Are you a life coach? Are you all of the above? All of the above, I'd say. Um, you know, you build relationships with students here and in that right time of need, you're the person they feel most comfortable with and they'll divulge things to you that, you know, sometimes would make people skin crawl, but they feel that sense of, of, of comfort with you and, and you have to play that role. And then there's times that you have to play the disciplinarian when they're just not getting the message after repeated intervention and you got to play that role. Um, sometimes you got to, just listen and, and play that role. So I, I'd, I'd lump it as all of those. So in your role, what are you really good at? Um, connecting, like, to, like connecting with, with students and parents. If you have a student that, if I have a student that is nervous, is all get out, they're just not connecting with, you know, the, their new environment. They're not making friends. They, they kind of shut down and kind of stay to themselves. I feel I'm really good at, at kind of breaking that wall down. And again, that comes from my, my own experience here. I was that person. Like I, when, I, when my parents left me here and I saw my dad cry for the third time in life ever, 
uh, I thought to myself, oh, God, what have I done? And that was the immediate time that I locked the door and I said, I'm just going to stay to myself. And that's a big part of why I didn't transition well, because I was I had locked myself into I didn't want to be here. This wasn't for me. So I, I feel I do a really good, good job, probably the best of anything I do in just making that initial connection. What are you not very good at? Um, I'm not very good at uh, dealing with individuals that are stuck in the woe is me phase, meaning I just want to talk about all the things that are a problem and impacting me, but I don't want to perpetuate any change. I just want to be the person that laments on why life is so hard. That's tough for me sometimes. And I've sometimes got to take breaks from those conversations and say, look, you know, I want to reconnect. Let's, let's, let's take a little bit. What's your next class schedule? What's your class schedule like? Oh, you're done at two. Let's meet up at two 30. Let's get a smoothie. And then I'll try to change the environment rather than like sitting in my office. We'll go for a walk around campus. And I find that if you do that, sometimes you kind of get a different perspective, uh, but that's tough for me. I'm, I'm a change type person. If I don't like something in my life, then I change it. Um, I focus on what it is. I cut it out if I need to. I alter it if I need to. And, and that's tough for me sometimes to go back and say, okay, when you were 17, 18 years old, that was a tough skill to just say, oh, change it. And that's a maturity thing. Um, but it's one I've got to remind myself on, on a constant basis. First year students get a lot more flexibility than, than upperclassmen with me. Um, you're, you've been here, you know the system, you know what's expected. Look, in three months, you're going to be at your first full-time job. This stuff's not going to fly in the office. I'm sorry you don't feel well this morning, but guess what you need to do? You got to get up and go to work. Um, I'm sorry your relationship's not working out. You know, you, you're, you, you, there's a lot on the line. This is an environment right now here at, at university where you, it, you can make a mistake, you can mess up because the consequences to a degree, depending on what it is, are a lot less than, you know, you calling out three days in a row in your full-time job. That, that's going to raise some flags for some people and there's a greater consequence. So much has been said about mm-hmm. generational shifting and differences. Mm-hmm. And in terms of culture, mm-hmm. you as a member of the institution are presenting a culture to our students, to Virginia Wesleyan students. And oftentimes there's a disconnect, certainly not unique to Virginia Wesleyan. There's a disconnect between that culture and the culture that um, students are coming from. Mm -hmm. Can you articulate that difference? Uh, And of course we're talking in strict generalities here. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, what I'm seeing with each class that comes in is this is a generation of me. It's a generation of me, me, the individual, me and what my needs are me as this is what I need. It's, it's, it's generation me. And I don't fault them for that. If you think about it, they've, their entire lives have been scripted to this point. They've, they've been told what to think. They've, had their days planned and been ushered and shuttled around to this and this and this and this. Everybody's gotten a trophy. Uh, Everyone's been rewarded for just trying. Um, So one of the biggest differences we see is we try to get, especially first year students, we try to get them to see beyond the me. 
that should be a t-shirt see beyond the me um because while we celebrate the individual here it takes everyone working together to move the wheel you're going to see it in your classrooms in your your, your coursework that there's you're going to have to work together you're going to see it in the internships you have the undergraduate research you have this is it this we don't reward the me here as much as we do reward the community. Um, and I like to think that we're helping them once they get ready for that transition to the real world, uh, that they're able to see that they're a larger part of something rather than they're just, they're here. Yeah, I tell them, I'm like, look, when you graduate from college, you're going to be joining the workforce with a million other people that have the same degree that you have just from a different place that participate in the same things that you participated in. So you need to be able to articulate and show proof of why you're different. What makes you stand out and how are you more well-rounded and capable of being part of a larger unit? Which is also a fine line because you're saying you need to stand out as an individual, but you also need to be part of a, a greater community and there's this transition period, and it's going to happen when they go to the next thing, when they leave here. And we see it all the time. We see students that kind of get to the, the last semester and they shut down. They fail everything because they're not ready for that next change because the change from high school to college was so great that now they know that this is going to be another change, that they're not going to see their friends every day, that they're not going to have their Greek organization meetings every week, that that there's this change. So, so that's one of the biggest generational things. The, the, the differences I see between our culture here is trying to, that, trying to get them to see that they are a much larger piece of a bigger picture. That it's not just me. So if you could do anything or make any change to mm -hmm. higher education, what would you do to lubricate this connection this between change, cultures this change yeah. uh i would have some sort of transitional piece much earlier in the senior year of a high school student you know a lot of times the, the only thing they see about it the only thing you see about a college or a university is what you see online what you see in the application what you see on an occasional single visit or maybe two visits, and then you're there for orientation and move in. That, you know, if there was perhaps a program in which a student was applied and accepted to your institution, that there was some kind of bridge, you know, maybe it's there, they take a college course here, so they're already getting used to the coursework of your environment knowing that they want to come here not the local whatever college or community college that they're getting ap for you know it, it, a student that says oh i've done college work when i was in high school well that was a different environment you were still in your high school environment surrounded by all the support systems that you had mom sitting hey have you done your paper have you done this that's not the case here you're 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 an adult here you're an individual here and, and you're responsible kind of for your own successes and also your own failures. So I'd say that I would, there'd be some kind of program that, that allows them to interact with the community at much earlier stages. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. 
how do you know what to do in your role? What, what are the resources, books, life experiences? What, what informs the way you interact with students? Um, I think the, this is going to sound cheesy, but I think the first and foremost is it's that golden rule concept. You know, I just, I, first off, they, uh, they want to be heard. So I want to listen to them. Uh, you, you know, you treat them kind, you don't put them down. You don't, you treat them the way you want to be treated. That starts. Um, one of the greatest tools that I have, that I think in the field, uh, uh, Matthew is, is colleagues, colleagues from different institutions. Um, our annual conference for the state, which takes place up in the mountains, uh, is, is two days for us to come together and talk about the, the generation we're serving, how things have changed drastically in the last several years, and kind of what, what do we see as trends and patterns coming forth? What are the things that, you know, we're doing that we shouldn't be doing or things that we're not doing that we should be doing? Um, it, it, colleagues are the greatest, greatest resource I think anybody can have. And that's why I preach to students that networking is the number one skill you can have that you need to be making connections inside your, your, your organization, but also in your field. You know, if you're hired for a specific job, do some research on other people that have similar positions at other organizations, reach out, tell them you're new to the position. What are some, what are some things that you can share? What are some things that they can share with you? Things that they avoided or their first year or things that they came in contact with their first year that really taught them a lot. Um, you know, uh, I sent you, uh, I sent you that the water people video yesterday. And, and one of the strongest comments I got was there was an older lady that was talking about, she was the coach, I think for the paddle team. And she was talking about, you know, how, if you don't teach, if you don't share things, if you don't, you know, share resources, then those things die with you. And, and it's the same concept. It's, it's, there are people who have been in this role before. There are people that are, are, are doing things that are top notch. So find who your aspirational peers are in your individual positions and strive to be like them. Well said. Everybody, everybody can be Walmart. You know, but not everyone can be, you know, the small mom and pop place that services a specific community that you get that kind of customer service. And, and that's what you want to offer. There's a Walmart every, you know, 10 miles. What is the next evolution of your culture in your mind? What's the next level? Of our culture here? Yep. Oh man. Uh, I think technology, I mean, it's, it's such an integral part of what we do every day, but I just see it. I see it in five to 10 years, I, just leaps and bounds. I mean, you're going to be, you're going to be having students taking classes that could be based in California that, you're still servicing through a phone call and not face to face. So I, I think technology is going to be a major contributing factor for good and for bad for, for our culture here. What's the bad? Um, just further disconnect, further, further disconnect, uh, lessening ability to have a dialogue face to face to communicate well, uh, more papers and projects submitted that, are all been typed on a cell phone because they're all lowercase with no punctuations. 
um there's just that 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 disconnect so that and that's what's that's what's so odd about being so connected like our students today this generation is so connected yet they're so disconnected if uh finish the sentence you build an intentional culture by example at virginia wesleyan our culture is Hmm. The ability to adapt. We create culture by. Expecting the most out of people. Jason Seward. Thank you very much. Hey, no, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Performance Rising Podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can find all the information about the podcast at performancerising.org. And be sure to check out the Instagram page at performance underscore rising.